Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Truth Nation podcast. My name is Bill Bodner. I am joined today by the D1 athlete of this pair, the guy, the guy who ran a 4440 in the 1986 NFL Combine. Was any of that true, Mark? It is Mark true Garrett. in the 4440, yeah. but it took me eight seconds to do it, just so you know. Yeah, that's how my math works. Welcome, everybody. Uh, today, we are going to uh, talk about a documentary called Crime of the Century. And Mark, why I thought this was important to talk about and share a couple of reasons. First off, you know, every time we turn on the news now, uh, our producers, Vincent Anthony, they were just mentioning earlier that they'd seen some ads for fentanyl awareness things over the past couple of days. Everybody's talking about fentanyl. I think it's important to share the root cause of the fentanyl crisis in this country right now to put the blame where it belongs. I know that's something that you talk about a lot on your podcast, your Leo Nation is accountability. There should be some accountability here, or at the very least, let's make sure that we're not making the same mistakes again and that we don't make the same mistakes again. And finally, there's a lot of talk of, there's a lot of talk, a lot of criticism of the Mexican government, their lack of action or corruption there and how that impacts fentanyl coming across the border and harming people in this country. All of those things are true, but let's also talk about decisions politicians have made in this country, what people in my own agency and the Food and Drug Administration have done, where questionable ethics, let's call it questionable ethics, where that has come into play and where that has set the groundwork to allow these Mexican cartels to come in and just dominate the market, right? So I feel like the documentary Crime of the Century is a great piece. It's two parts. It's uh, two hours apart, so it's a long watch. But I think it's a great piece to learn how the pharmaceutical in this industry, in this country, actually drove opiate addiction 20 years ago, beginning actually in the late 90s and leading right up through, let's call it 2012, 2013, when we saw the peak in this country. It's a movie that was filmed in, let's say 2020, probably, maybe a little bit in early 2021. It was released in May of 21. So it's a couple of years old now. And one thing I always caution people when talking about fentanyl is the complexion of the issue changes monthly, meaning that who's being harmed, how the drugs are being marketed, what the drugs look like. That's changed and that's changing constantly. But again, I feel like Crime of the Century is a good piece to just set the groundwork and give everyone a base understanding of how we arrived at where we're at today. I'm going to start, Mark, just by talking a little bit about some of the historical facts that the movie brings to light. And then we can get into the real meat of it after that. And one thing that I thought was super interesting in the beginning of this movie was they talk about 1839, right? 19th century, early 19th century. Opium was the world's opium, the foundation of uh, organic uh, opiate drugs. Opium was the world's most traded commodity. And there were Americans and American companies that were growing it in Turkey and selling it in the, in the United States. Even relatives of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, president of the United States, his relatives even were involved in this trade of growing opium in Turkey and bringing it to the United States. Now, in this country, 
back in, I think it was the early 90s or late 80s, right around when I started at DEA. I'm now retired, by the way. We appointed uh, a drug czar in this country. It was a cabinet level position, someone that reports directly to the president of the United States. And this drug czar was responsible for basically the whole public policy surrounding illicit drugs. Believe it or not, the Chinese appointed a drug czar in the 1830s, right? That's how ahead of their time they were in recognizing the danger that opiates were causing in their country. They had uh, crazy addiction problems and they just started taking opium that was coming to them from the United Kingdom and dumping it in the ocean. The opiate companies, corporations back then, were losing money on this and were in such fear of this continuing that they pushed the British government to actually go to war with China to stop this destruction of opium and basically prevent the shutdown of the Chinese opium market. It was so profitable to, to businesses in the United Kingdom, they pressured their government to go to war to keep that opiate market open. And in this country, we saw Merck develop morphine and Bear, a brand that's still around today, develop a cough syrup called heroin. When addiction got out of control in this country, because it certainly did, those drugs were outlawed and then it became criminalized drug trafficking. Traditional organized crime, Italian organized crime moving powder heroin, predominantly on the East Coast, a tar heroin, something that you probably saw a lot in your days with California Highway Patrol on the West Coast. Uh, Mexican trafficking organizations, so-called drug cartels trafficking that on the West Coast. When that happened, there were some enterprising individuals, let's call them in this country, that got into the pharmaceutical business. The Sackler family, who we've heard a lot of over the past couple of years and a lot of the opiate litigation, et cetera, going on, they bought a company called Purdue Frederick, and they... They immediately used what I guess would best be called unethical marketing or non-traditional marketing techniques to push their drugs to the market. They invented experts. They had doctors who didn't exist write kind of fake recommendations for drugs. Why did they do that? Because especially at that time, and even still today, Mark, we are uh, a nation that puts doctors in a very respected position in our society. We believe in them, we trust them, we listen to them, we respect them. They took advantage of that trust and belief to market these uh, drugs in the early days. And the first big drug they had was a morphine sulfate drug called MS-Cotton, C-O-N-T-I-N. And that is really where the problems in this country began. Contin stands for continuous release. We later, we're going to talk in, in a few minutes about oxycontin. That's where that content comes from. It comes from the term continuous release. You take a drug in the morning and it has a coating on it and it slowly dissolves in your system throughout the day to give you pain relief throughout the day. When they were losing the patent on MS Cotton, the, the Purdue company, that's when Oxycontin began. They were looking for a new drug to bring to market, and that's where they came up with Oxycontin. And that's really 
where the, the trouble started. So Mark, as you watched the beginning of this documentary and saw that wars had been fought over this drug before it, before it was ever, before there was such a thing as prescription drugs, what were your thoughts on the early days of opium, uh, morphine sulfate, et cetera? It was trying to think of the right word here to be concise, which is not like me. I'm usually long-winded, but it was eye-opening. And let me go back a little bit, Bill. This documentary was, it's excellent, very well done. But this is why I think it's so important for people to hear this show today, to watch the documentary, Crime of the Century. It's because, look, I was in law enforcement for 30 years. Like you said, I heroin and methamphetamine any number of drugs I booked people for over the years, some for, for sales, for trafficking. But even with that experience in Los Angeles County for all those years, I was not aware of the background, the history of, and we'll talk about opiates specifically for these purposes, really until I heard you speak at a law enforcement function uh, almost a couple of years ago now. And I was already retired from Ohio Patrol. I was working in private, private industry and I was invited to go by a mutual acquaintance and you were the keynote speaker about fentanyl. And I was absolutely amazed at the information you provided about the history, the origin of fentanyl and how it was tied to the pharmaceutical industry. It was eye-opening, like I said, a few minutes ago. And then beyond that, I did some research, like you're saying now, going back to the history. And of course, I think most people have heard about the opium den, dens, things mm -hmm. like this. And, but again, it, it didn't sink in as being this global issue that even I was aware of with, with stories like that, thinking it being more localized and not so prevalent, and most importantly, not really tied to governments. And what you're talking about a few minutes ago about the, the British government and, and how they wanted to make sure this industry kept flourishing because it's bringing so much money into the empire. These are significant issues. And, and this really could be a whole different series of shows on human nature and how we have to look out for ourselves as individuals, because there are any number of people and entities out there that want to take advantage of weaknesses. And in this case, addictions. That's what my genesis is with this is really you talking about this at a, at a function a couple of years ago, really opened my eyes, even having been in law enforcement for so long, dealing with narcotics. It's so important, I think, for people to really listen carefully to really what you have to say today. And maybe hopefully I can chime in on it as well. Yeah. So I think it starts with Purdue Pharma. As I said, they were losing the patent on morphine sulfate continuous release. So what does that mean? That means that other drug makers are now going to be able to knock that off legally and create generic brands of the drug. And that's going to really eat into their profits. Where drug companies make money is when they have a patent on a drug. When they come up with a new drug, they're able to patent it. Now, the government allows them to do that. The premise, Mark, is that by allowing a, a drug company to patent a drug, you are rewarding them for doing the research and development, for putting tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars into a project, developing a new drug and bringing it to market. That's incredib incredibly expensive. 
The government rewards them by enabling them to patent the drug and profit from it for uh, a number of years as the sole producer. But as that patent comes close to expiration, that drug company, if they want to remain profitable, and remember one thing that I'll mention several times today is what is the fiduciary responsibility of the CEO of a drug company? Is it to help patients or is it to maximize shareholder return? The reality is his fiduciary responsibility is to maximize shareholder return. Hopefully he's ethical, hopefully he's moral, hopefully he works towards helping patients, but the reality is that there is an undeniable profit motive here. And the reason why Purdue looked to OxyContin in the first place was because they wanted to take their continuous release technology, let's call it, pair it with another drug where they could patent it and, and be profitable for several years going forward. Now, the process to get a drug approved, that's something that the FDA, so in the federal government, there's the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, your old boss, I think now is running that department, Mark, Javier Becerra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is, isn't he your old boss? Yeah, he fit a California boss. Yeah, yeah, technically he was. Yeah, yeah. And he I was, was happy to boss, see him so leave, but now he's in a higher position. So I like, yeah. So so he yeah. is the secretary of of health and human services. Underneath it, or within, I guess is the proper term. Within health and human services is the Food and Drug Administration. They are responsible for reviewing a drug and approving a drug, and a drug company makes an application to them with studies to back it up, right? The drug company has to pay for these studies. As I said earlier, they pay for these studies. They compile all the information. They do an expert review. They turn it over to the FDA. And generally that, that request for uh, authorization to sell a drug will be specific to very certain prescription guidelines. In other words, we want to bring this drug to market for acute chronic cancer pain or something like that, right? It has to be a very specific thing. The first area where I saw some amount of, let's call it, let's call it a compromised ethics mark in this is in that review process when Purdue Pharma was bringing uh, Oxycontin to market, there was a gentleman working at the FDA, FDA named Curtis Wright. Now, Mr. Wright has never been charged with a crime, but from the evidence that I've seen and that was depicted in this documentary, he worked with Purdue Pharma and actually allowed Purdue Pharma to craft the medical review. So it, it almost appeared like they, the company wrote their own medical review and then gave it to FDA to present as if it was the FDA review. Did you feel that way when you saw that? Yeah. And if people could see me making notes here, I highlight it, just what you're talking about right now, Bill, because I think that this is really the crux of the matter. And I'm really excited for you to really expand on a number of these issues, but this is one of them. Curtis Wright is working directly with a pharmaceutical company, Purdue, mm -hmm. to concoct the language that he knows will pass muster in the FDA to get this Put. approved. Like he said, I don't know if he's ever been charged and I don't think he ever was charged for the crime 
But here's a question that people need to ask. Okay, why would anybody obviously compromise himself if on no other level, just from a moral level, just from a moral, let's just keep it right there. Mm-hmm. Why would they compromise themselves to go sit down with a company to help them write the language that was going to get their drug approved? What is the motivation for someone like this? You know, if we fast forward, just, I think about a year later, <laughs> lo and behold, Curtis Wright, a high-ranking FDA official, is now working for this company. I don't have any proof. We don't have any recordings. We don't have any witness statements. But I would really guess that during these conversations, they're saying, listen, if you help us get this through, you're going to have a nice fat landing, soft landing here at Purdue to come work for us for a really good amount of money. That's my guess. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that happened. But we do know that he did work for, he did go to work for a company. I don't think it was just by coincidence. Now, let me juxtapose, and sorry, I didn't want to say something, but I was going to just step in real quick. So, so I, was I did, say, I, the, yeah, he go ahead. went there, I, I, what was his salary, Mark? 340000 or 370000 I think it was I mean, 340, that's, 25 years, that's, 26 that, years ago. That's my point. Right. Yeah. That's not in today's world. That's a lot of money. 20, 20, 25 years ago. That's a lot, a lot of money. Yes. We call that a crap load uh, where I grew up actually starts with an S, but I won't say it here. Right. An enormous amount of money. Now, again, I want to focus on the ethics here because as we mm-hmm. go through this, we'll see that if any number of individuals stepped up from an ethical point of view during a lot of this Probably tens of thousands, if not more lives would have been saved, in my humble opinion, if just a few people had done the right thing in in different capacities over this whole process to where we are now. But I want to juxtapose what happened with Curtis Wright going over to the pharmaceutical company Mm -hmm. to what the rules are for, say, California Highway Patrol. In other words, when I Mm -hmm. leave the CHP, as a manager, and I did three years ago. But when I leave the California Highway Patrol, California law prevents me from contracting with any state agency for two years after I separate. In other words, if I have a private business, construction mm-hmm. business or consulting business or whatever it is, there is at least a finable time period, a cooling off period, where I really can't use my former position to gain advantage. Now, here you have apparently far as we can tell, there are no rules in place that pre- prevent this government official from going to work for a private entity that he obviously had some very impactful relations with uh, during his time there in the federal government. So this is an oversight all by itself, if, if not intentional, I don't know, but these gaps, these allow these types of things to happen. So interestingly enough, Mark, as I just retired, and there are actually restrictions, very similar restrictions. In this case, Mr. Wright was subject to some restrictions. But if you remember the deposition of Sackler, when he was questioned about when Curtis Wright came to work for him, he was very vague. He said, oh, I think it was about three years after he left FDA. I don't remember exactly. It wasn't right away. He did go to work somewhere else for one year, and then he jumped over to Purdue. But keep in mind, what these companies will often do, what I've seen, and there's another case where this comes up later with an actual DEA employee, 
what these uh, corporations will often do is start a subsidiary or somehow create another company where they're not the principal and the person will go to work for that company and then the pharmaceutical company will contract with that. So there's, there are rules, but there's also creative ways to get around rules. And it's a challenge ethically. It's a challenge. And like you said, I would say more than tens of thousands of lives, because as we work through this, I'll tell you why I think these, these opiate pill producers like Purdue Pharma are very directly responsible for what's happening today with fentanyl. Well, first of all, Bill, I'm really glad that you clarified that. I'm glad these rules are in place, but like you said, where there's a will, there's a way and people with corrupt motives can mm-hmm. circumvent the rules. It looks what they did here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing, which I think was discussed at about, and by the way, we were working through this documentary somewhat chronologically. The, the other thing that was discussed there, which I think more than any other single point in the whole documentary or any other single issue, to be honest, in history that caused the opiate issue in this country was the package insert and what wording was allowed to be put on that package insert that went in the oxycodone um, packaging. Now, why is that wording significant? Doctors rely on that wording to prescribe the drug. Um, Doctors do not know everything about every drug on the market. They will often contact the reps, the sales reps, the drug maker sales reps, and ask them questions about when to prescribe certain drugs. When can this drug be prescribed? What's the interaction with this drug? And they rely on the sales reps, believe it or not, who really don't have a a medical backing. They are supposed to know their drug, but they don't have the medical backing. They rely on them for a lot of information. So when something is allowed to be put in writing in a package insert, all that sales rep has to do is point to it. They only have to point to it and say, here's what the packaging says. This was approved by the FDA. And the doctors look at that and say, oh, okay, thanks. Here's what the packaging insert said uh, on that. And this is a direct quote. And this goes to, again, the, the content part of OxyContin is the continuous release or delayed absorption form of the drug. Here's, here's the packaging insert. Delayed absorption, as provided by OxyContin tablets, is believed to reduce the abuse liability of the drug. It turns out, Mark, there is no factual basis for that statement at all. The people who believed it were at Purdue Pharma, and they didn't even believe it. They, in subsequent civil trials, it turned out they knew it was false. So it seems to be patently false language that was put in the packaging insert that doctors relied upon when prescribing the drug. So even a doctor who was afraid about creating addiction or causing harm to his patient, all the sales rep has to do is point to this packaging insert, the doctor reads it and he says, oh, you know what? I'm actually comfortable prescribing this drug for you based on this wording. And Bill, it, it, you're absolutely right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that was at least part of the wording that right, that Curtis Wright helped uh, craft is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And and I think not only was it part of it, but that was the that was really the crux that that got it past the uh, hurdle of the FDA. By the way, speaking of that, and I went back and I, I said I think I, I watched uh, one part of this twice, and the other one obviously all the way through. It's fascinating. But I'm wondering, and maybe the answer to this, but I couldn't mm-hmm. figure this out in the documentary. I don't think it was intended to really tell you why or not. Why not? But 
How is it that this one person, Curtis Wright, is able to craft the language and, and then ship it up to, I'm assuming, superiors, or is he the final arbiter of what language is put on these prescriptions? Were there other people involved that looked at this and turned a blind eye, didn't care, they were lazy, they were negligent, or is there no, no other conduit that this goes through? That's a great, yeah, that's a great question. I, here's, I, I don't know the answer to that. Here's what I suspect, and this is just going to be based on my own observations, which you probably have too, in leadership at a government agency. At some point, his superiors are relying upon him to be the fact finder. And they're trusting in him and they've rightly or wrongly, let, let, let's put it like this. It's very possible they got burned by him, Mark, mm -hmm. it, meaning mm -hmm. that they empowered him to be the fact finder, to create proper documentation for this drug. He didn't do it and they signed off on it. Yep. Uh, listen, you said we've, we've all seen it and, and listen, and I've had those bosses that I'd write stuff for and. They would just say, hey, I put my stamp on it, yeah, my signature right. stamp on it. I've had the other bosses that if you wrote their name on a piece of paper yeah. and handed it to them, it'd come back with a correction. In other words, I've dealt with the extremes and looking back on it, Bill, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I'll tell you what those people, he's a former commissioner, of the California Habitual, the boss, Ward Stanley. And I worked for him when he was a chief and I was a PIO sergeant, but I could not submit any public relations, marketing, recruitment information to his desk without coming back for corrections. Now that made me be more a reflection on my poor writing skills than it is, but I know for his reputation that he's a nitpicker and I'm so grateful for him because he made me a better thinker. He made me yep. a more cautious writer. And he just made me look more carefully at myself. I knew nothing would get past him. And we don't have enough of that. We do not have enough of that in our bureaucracies. I wish they were smaller. I wish they were more efficient. Those are wishes, aren't facts right now. So yeah, I agree. I agree with that, Mark. I think one thing I impress upon young leaders, especially when I knew I was retiring and there were people stepping up to fill different roles in my agency is ask questions. I don't think there's an, and it's not from a, it doesn't have to be from a place of doubt or, or, or showing that you don't have confidence in someone. It, it goes to what you just talked about. Ask questions just to cause people to think more. And we definitely, I don't think, I don't think there's enough of that in, in any bureaucracy, right? I agree with you. 2000, the year 2000, cotton sales exceeded $1 billion. They had got the drug approved. They had this packaging insert, which was basically a license to print money. They held a patent on the drug so no one else could make it. Then they started really aggressively marketing the drug. How do you do that? You need to, when you have a pain drug, you need to change the way people think about pain in society. And that's what they did. There was a big part of this documentary that talks about the creation of the fifth vital sign. Where now, when you went to a doctor's office, they take your temperature, they check your blood pressure, and they say, are you in any pain? How do you rate your pain? Even though it's completely subjective, they would ask you how you rated your pain. 
And that became almost standard of care. By doing that, they make it okay to prescribe pain-relieving drugs and, and okay to prescribe more oxycontins. And I just thought that was a, a fascinating example of when the market for or how a pharmaceutical company can create more market for a drug, not by making the drug better or doing anything to the drug, but just changing the guidelines as to how it's prescribed and by encouraging healthcare practitioners to ask different questions. They're able to change the narrative and make a drug more marketable. Yeah, I agree. It really creating a market, creating a market that didn't exist yesterday. Listen, these things right here are a prime example, Bill. 20 years ago, we functioned just fine somehow without them. And now none of us can live without them. It's just that mm -hmm. our lives are tied to cell phones. It's a market that didn't exist. Now it does. And now it's completely, we're de dependent upon these things. And by the way, pretty much by choice. Yeah. Along with that, the eating the, you know, fifth vital thing, um, there were a couple of things along with this in with the FDA approving or creating whatever the term pseudo addiction. Oh yeah. And by the way, here I've come to, I don't know, they accept it, but I hadn't really thought about that term that much. It's so ubiquitous. In other words, people are not actually physically addicted to something. They just get used to taking it and they don't stop. It's not really an addiction. It's just a habit they're involved in, but they stop tomorrow. No big deal. That was also creation, I believe, of the FDA. I don't, I'm not sure the origins of that, if it came fr from Purdue. But the other part of that with the cotton, the continuous release, mm -hmm. was the FDA says that because there's this continuous release, there's really no harm in prescribing larger doses. Is that a fair takeaway from the documentary? Exactly. The guy, so Purdue did invent that term, Mark. Purdue invented the term pseudo addiction. It was a guy named Haddix uh, who worked at the company. Um, it, it is a, a lot, like you said, the only thing I'd add to it is what their contention was is you're not addicted, you're not physically addicted to the drug, but the drug is doing such an amazing job of reducing your pain. You're addicted to the pain relief. Mm -hmm. So just, you just happen to be taking the drug. That's not what you're addicted for. Hey, here's why that's a crock. <laughs> Centers for Disease Control. Now, in 2018, I came across this information. I was doing some talk about prescription drugs, and I'm pretty confident I remember it accurately. Let, let me say it like that. I cannot find this study anywhere now on the CDC website. So if anyone can find it, if you're watching us on YouTube, drop it in the comments where you found it. But there was a study done about patients who had received a, a prescription for an opiate drug. Here's what it said, to the best of my recollection. It said, if you receive a three-day three prescription for an opiate drug, there's a 20% chance that one year later, you'll still be taking the drug and you're being physically addicted to it. A 10% chance, I'm sorry, three days, 10% chance. Five-day prescription of an opiate drug, a 20% chance. And if you leave with a 10-day prescription, there's a 50% chance you'll be physically addicted to the drug a year later and still taking it. So it is, not only is it physically addicting, it's the, probably the most powerful addiction that 
we encounter in our society, the addiction to opiate drugs. And it's just a crock to say there's something called pseudo addiction. Why did they do that? It's exactly the reason you said, Mark, if they can take the stigma or take out the, not even the stigma, the danger, if they can take the danger out of out of the equation for the prescribing people, for the doctors are going to be more likely to prescribe it and they're going to sell more. So, so really it was, it was just a, it was a marketing gimmick to be uh, blunt. It was just a marketing gimmick they come, came up with to make the drug seem more safe. It's exactly what it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, so I, I don't know, did you catch Dr. Lynn Webster, the, the talk about Dr. Lynn Webster? He ran yes. a place called Life, Life Tree Pain Clinic. My old organization, DEA, became acquainted with him when they kicked his door in and, and did a search warrant, did a search warrant at, at his office. I got, um, I've got to interject. When you said yeah. my former agency became acquainted, I was already laughing because there's right. only one way right. other than this yeah. to become acquainted with DEA. Yeah. What blew my mind is he, number one, it blew my mind that he agreed to do an on-camera interview for this. And yeah, again, right? I, you know, hey, just go away somewhere. I apologize. you didn't do the stuff you did. Yeah, I'm sorry for stepping in there, but I'm so glad you said that. I was like shocked. He was just sitting there in a stool there in the hallway of the old clinic or whatever, just talking yeah. away. You know what, Mark? Here's what that is. And uh, I don't have this in my notes, but hearing you say it like that, here's what that is. That's ego. Yeah. That's ego. And we yeah. saw that when he talked about, if you recall, the female patient who died, died, the quantity of drugs he was prescribing to her. And when her husband intervened and said, hey, she shouldn't be taking this stuff. And he said, I'm the doctor. I'll decide what she takes, not you, or something to that effect. You can see that it seems pretty clear that this guy had a big ego. That's what caused a lot of his problem and unfortunately caused a lot of harm. Here's, he, mm -hmm. here's what he said. Lynn Webster from the documentary. Most people exposed to an opio opioid will never become addicted regardless of the time they are on it. Contrast that with what I just said came from the Centers for Disease Control, right? Completely contradictory what Centers for Disease Control says. I'm just, I don't know what to make of, of that guy. It sounds like we both agree on that, but th well, that's we, a, a strange one. We do agree on it. And I thought the same thing that just, just arrogance, ego, and how this happens. Of course, not only is it in, in total contradiction, a statement about no, no matter how long you're on it, you won't become addicted. No long, no, not only is it in contradiction to the CDC posts that you can't find anymore on their website, but it's also illogical. In other words, if you're taking five of these pills a day for six years, is that not an addiction? But again, it just, like you said, Bill, it goes to the arrogance. And I think what we're seeing here where I'm getting educated right now, we have to understand that so many of these people, these doctors, sales reps, they're all just bathing in this environment of we can do whatever we want to. The federal government has given us blessing. The doctors are saying this, the salespeople are saying this, the patients are coming in and buying more than I can get. It's just this momentum of anything goes and you do whatever you want to. And I think that's the environment in which this guy's talking and where he's coming from and he's used to it. Yeah, he the, was. So, so, so this is probably a good point for me to uh, discuss what DEA's role in this environment is. Mm -hmm. 
We talked about FDA, right? They're the ones that give, let's say they give permission for a, a drug to come to market and they schedule a drug, meaning they look at propensity for addiction, approved medical uses, and really more so than propensity to addiction, propensity for abuse. And they schedule a drug, meaning they, or they recommend a schedule for the drug. And then that comes over to DEA and DEA will actually either agree with their recommendation or, or schedule it alternatively. What scheduling means is the, the lower the number, schedule one is no medically accepted use of a drug. It can't be prescribed to anybody. Schedule two means there are medically accepted uses for the drug but there's a high propensity for abuse you have to be very careful when prescribing it and dispensing it. And there's going to be specific rules about that. So not only does DEA work in the illicit drug space, cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, we all, we had, or I had when I worked there, DEA still has, without me, DEA still has uh, regulatory responsibility. We're regulating every manufacturer of a controlled substance, every distributor of a controlled substance, every prescriber and every dispenser. Everybody in that prescription drug supply chain, if they're handling controlled drugs, not penicillin, not ibuprofen, not drugs like that, but a scheduled drug, DEA has responsibility to regulate that drug flow in our country right now. When DEA starts doing that, when DEA recognizes a problem and steps in and starts intervening and saying, hey, we see issues with abuse of this drug, it's being overprescribed or it's being prescribed without medical necessity, or it's being fraudulently dispensed by a pharmacy. What we saw in the case of OxyContin was we saw a, let's call it a propaganda campaign start. So what would happen is Doctors would recruit, or, or the drug companies would recruit doctors who would recruit patients to write letters to the DEA, to write letters to their public representatives, and to say, hey, we're being denied our pain medication. We are suffering patients, and we're being denied access to our medicine. What are you going to do about it? And that's a, that's a challenge in this space. The way they put it, Mark, is... They're advocating for the drug companies claim they're advocating for victims who need their medicine. The reality is they're just marketing the drug. They're just pushing the drug. And what I noticed about Oxycontin and who Purdue was hiring to sell the drug, I noticed, and I don't know if you caught this work, they, they wouldn't hire anyone to sell a drug who had sold another opiate drug. Right. Why is that? Because that person would know the dangers associated with the drug. And when Purdue started telling them there was no propensity for addiction, or here's what the packaging inserts say, it might not make sense with them and they might question it. They found yeah. people that had no experience selling this drug who were willing to buy into whatever they were selling. That's a great point here. And I can't remember the gentleman's name. I may have my notes here, but uh, he was only there for a couple of years, but it was pretty early on where he started seeing red flags. and. He, is it Ross? That's it. His last name was Ross. Yeah. Yes. And he was one of the most credible people. There were a lot of credible people in the documentary, but he was very much right to the point. He was very clear. He was very certain in his positions and he gave great, great documentation and perspective in there. The funny thing is he talked about, they didn't hire people with really pharmaceutical experience. Let's put it that way. 
because they knew the difference. One of the people they hired was the stripper. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? I can't remember her name. I think she was a Sun, she, Sunrise dancer. What was it? Uh, Sunrise Lee. Yeah, there you go. That's she, it. She, yeah. she was. She was. Yeah, she was hired actually by uh, Insys later on. Yes, exactly. I said Purdue, but you get another company yeah. start talking yep. about the 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 industry in general. Yep. But yep. for the same reason, they were looking for they were looking for salespeople, people who could push and sell anything. They weren't looking for experts in the field, and just for the reasons you articulated. I now, by the way, there's nothing wrong with hiring somebody because they can sell an ice cube to an Eskimo in in mm-hmm. January. That that's fine, but they weren't focused on they weren't focused on the actual legitimate side of pharmaceuticals and there's plenty of legitimate side they were looking for somebody who could sell no matter what that was their end and you're talking about the fiduciary responsibility that a ceo has and in this case it was only the bottom line that these mm-hmm. companies were interested in and i think that's a very telling example right there about the, the type of person they were hiring I think uh, when you talked about uh, Ross, I remember him going to people in the company and saying, hey, I'm hearing that this drug is being injected. I'm hearing it's being crushed and snorted. Um, I'm seeing waiting rooms with some nefarious looking characters in the doctor's waiting, doctor waiting rooms talking about how they're going to uh, sell the drug or use it illicitly in some other matter. And what do his superiors at the company tell him, Mark? Don't be a policeman. There we go. That's what he, that's what he was told. Don't be a policeman. Just keep selling. Now, by the way, Bill, um, I think you'll finish your thought. Please. Finish. No, no. This may be a great segue because I think the, the question a lot of people listening and watching me have right now is how do we get from the pharmaceutical industry to the street fentanyl? How do we yep. have this? What is connection? And we, you just hit on it right there from, in, in my opinion, you just hit on people grinding it up, cooking it, snorting it, shooting it, things like this. How do we go from strictly prescriptions to the ep- epidemic we experienced over the last decade or so or more? So the prescription drug uh, started to be used illicitly and at that time, so we're still talking, I don't know, let's say the peak, the peak of the prescription drug epidemic in this country, in my opinion, nationally was 2012, 2013. There were 255 million opiate prescriptions written in the United States that year. So I don't know what the adult population of the United States was. It's probably, it was probably close to that number. So you're almost talking one opiate prescription for each adult in the United States. What happens when society, meaning law enforcement, meaning doctors associations, pharmacy associations, what happens when they start to understand, because that's the point we were at, people are realizing, hey, man, this is not good. We're seeing, there was one study they said about that time in West Virginia, 25% of 11th graders were regularly using OxyContin. 9% of 7th graders had tried it. That's crazy for a super powerful drug. So as people start dialing back the availability of the drug, and and we'll get into how that was done and the pushback from politicians against that, but as as everyone got into dialing back the availability of the drug, what happened? 
the users who were physically addicted, they turned at that time to heroin. So even some of them, when pills were still available, turned to heroin because it was cheaper. So the addiction would start with the prescription pills. It then transitioned to heroin. And then later, what we saw in 2016, 2017, which was a game changer, was the major drug organizations in Mexico, Sinaloa Cartel, Jalisco New Generation Cartel, they said, wow, these pharmaceutical companies made incredible profits with these prescription drugs, and there's still demand for them. Why don't we just knock them off and create fake prescription pills? And that's what they did. No prescription ingredients in those pills, fentanyl with just a little bit of fillers, whatever colors. And as I always say, Mark, they look identical to the real prescription drugs, but that's where this this real fentanyl threat came from when the Mexican drug cartels took advantage of the demand that was created and nurtured by the, by the pharmaceutical drug companies and just came in and took over the market. Now, this is, it's, it's such an important point. And it's one, again, that you, that you made to me during that public address I talked about earlier on a couple of years ago, and it's, it's sad. It's fascinating, but it's also important to understand how this happened, how we went from that. And by the way, I just want to throw this in here as a caveat. In one sense, thank God for pharmaceutical companies. They have saved countless lives. They have made countless lives more bearable and, and pain-free, things like that. But anything is corruptible, and this is what we're talking about. This is how we got here, because human beings, individuals, are fallible. And they can be tempted easily. And this is what happens when things get out of control. So even something that has great benefit to mankind can be used for other reasons and can be abused. That's what we saw here. I, I know you say you want to get into that, but you're talking about I think, the, the West Virginia community. And it's that one doctor, is it Van Z, I believe? Van Z, Art Van, Van Z. Yeah. And I'll let you take it from there. But here's nope. a guy. He, he, here's a guy, here's, in my opinion, a hero. It's a yes. small, tiny community. And this guy sees what's going on. And it's like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He literally goes to Washington and does his best to illustrate what's happening in his community. And I do want you to take care of there from Bill, because I think that you probably have maybe, maybe a deeper in the weeds take on this, but what happened when he went to the Senate and like said, because you've talked about the pushback he got from a lot of politicians. Yeah. So what's interesting is he definitely, I think he described a perfectly small town doctor. Like I, I would think of him as a small town doctor, but someone who saw what was happening in his community, a local sheriff also wrote to Purdue and said 70% of the crime in his county mm -hmm. was related to drugs since Oxycontin came on the market. That's crazy. So Dr. Van Zee, goes to Washington. He testifies before Congress. Now, the drug company knew this was coming, right? They knew this was coming. They started an influence campaign of their own. So who did they hire? They hired Rudy Giuliani for one. And going back in time, Giuliani was coming right out of government service, probably didn't know too much about what's going on in prescription drugs or anything. He's retained, in my opinion, to influence pedal. He's tight with the Bush administration. And 
when we get to these congressional hearings, it's almost like Dr. Van Zee was dismissed. Yeah. It's almost like a lot of his thoughts and concerns were dismissed. And I know that doctor also met with Purdue. They, I think they came to his town or something like that, and they met with him, and they ended up offering what I would call hush money. They offered him $100,000 to use to help address the problem in his community, which he saw through, and he turned that down. But also, besides Giuliani, I think it was Chris Dodd, who is the rep from Connecticut, state of Connecticut, where Purdue Pharma was housed. Right. He was blaming uh, the drug user. He was blaming the drug user for the addiction, saying they misused the drug. Um, and ironically, after he did that, Purdue donated 10 times more to his campaign than they did to any other political figure. So that's where it's just like a dirty business where lobbyist money, influence peddling, the drug companies have a lot of money to spend to do this stuff, to push their narrative of what's happening in the community. It's, it doesn't matter if it's based on reality or not. We just heard Dr. Banzi say it's not. His reality from living there is X. The sheriff's reality from policing that town is X. But the politician who's taking lobbyist money or for a campaign or whatever, he can take the position why, and it's based only on what these lobbyists are telling him he should think, do, or say. Yes, very well said. And, and you mentioned two people there who are from opposite sides of the political aisle, Chris Dodd, Rudy Giuliani. So this was an all comers uh, type of situation when it came to influence, when it came from representation, came to representation. There were a number of people um, that uh, took part. Again, whether it's knowingly or just willful ignorance, who knows? But certainly across the board, people in politics were involved in this effort to expand this drug usage and turn a blind eye to the devastation it was causing in so many places. But and I know, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I know in the Western District of Virginia, they were putting a case together against Purdue Pharma. And... They had collected a lot of evidence, a ton of evidence. They thought that there was misleading statements made to Congress. What they did is they wrote what's called a, a prosecution memo, right? Mm -hmm. So in the federal system, in this case, it was the U.S. attorney of the district who approves it. One, of, one or probably several of his prosecutors actually wrote the memo. What a prosecution memo would do is outline all the evidence in the case. Here's all the evidence in the case. Here's who we want to charge. Here's why we think these charges are justified. Is that unusual? No. In fact, there's certain rules within the Department of Justice when you're targeting a corporation or something like that, that these charges have to go up to main justice to be reviewed. Now, there was a guy named Paul Pelletier who worked at the Department of Justice in the fraud unit, he saw this memo apparently, and he came on camera in this documentary and he said, I reviewed it and I thought it was good to go. But again, there was this influence campaign being driven by Purdue 
to shut down this prosecution. Purdue knew it was coming because obviously they had gotten subpoenas to give up documents. So they knew what information was out there and they knew the case was being put together. So their only chance to really avoid uh, criminal charges was to really lobby heavily to get this case squashed. Mm, that's right. And they did end up paying, uh, after all the said and done, I think it was a, a $600 million fine in 2006. Now yep. here's the significance of that fine. To me, it looks like it was a compromise. Uh, there were enough people, there were enough representatives in Congress to realize that something nefarious was happening here. Mm -hmm. They had the emails, the documents, the testimonies from salespeople, doctors, things like this. So pharma, pharma, so Purdue pays a $600 million fine in 2006, but and correct me if I'm wrong, but from about 1996 or seven, when Oxycontin was introduced and this whole thing starts, they had made about, or it was about $9 billion in revenue. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So they pay a $600 million fine, a little over 5% of the revenue that they had enjoyed is paid out in a fine and they're off the hook. And that's the end of the story there. Now it's not the end of the story ultimately, but to that point, that was a penalty that, that they paid. And so everybody could feel good, go home and say, oh, we find $600 million, so forth and so on. And, and we're done with this. So um, at least there was some recognition at that point, but again, that wasn't the final chapter in the story. This is a, a trick mark. This, this is a trick mark that's almost, it's frustrating when federal investigators who work these cases see this because the corporation took a guilty plea, right? A, a corporation is an entity. Right. The corporation right. took a guilty plea. None of the executives were charged with mm -hmm. anything. There may have been a couple uh, misdemeanors, if I'm remembering correctly, I think three maybe took some type of misdemeanor. And there were misdemeanor charges, there were personal yep. fines, but the company indemnified them and paid all of their penalties. And yep, 30, if I remember yep, correctly, 30, yeah, they gave them bonuses on top of that. They gave yeah, them so, bonuses. So that's exactly it for the pain and suffering that they, right. they endured while going through this lawsuit. So there were $34 million in personal fines that the company paid for. And then to reward them for their time and mental anguish while they were going through this process, the company paid them bonuses. That's crazy. And no one at the Department of Justice that it, it seems like no one in the Department of Justice took ownership of the decision not to prosecute individuals. I don't know if you got that same feeling. You know, there oh, was a lot, of influence, a lot of influence peddling. Rudy Giuliani, Mary Jo White, going to Alice Fisher, who was the head of criminal division at that time, and Colin McNulty at Department of Justice. No one really knows who made the decision not to prosecute the members of that corporation criminally. The case goes away and, and we move on. He, and he, here's why that's troubling, because if one executive got charged criminally, uh, a whole new world would have opened up because that executive is not going to go down alone. He's mm -hmm. going to provide insight into exactly what was happening at that company, who was responsible. And guess what? The company knew that. And that's why. Uh, they lobbied and that's why they paid the fines for them. And that's why they gave them bonuses because they knew that those employees who were targeted, but not charged, had they had cooperated with the government, the whole company would have tumbled down and there would have been 
a lot more criminal charges on, on yeah. people of people in the car. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That that got through the the first part of this documentary. It's incredibly well done, incredibly complete. But that penalty, that public exposure, that at least legal acceptance for some responsibility parlayed into some further things and moves right along. And this is where the Washington Post gets into the story here, so to speak. They wrote the story. Very good investigative reporters. Again, I might be getting ahead of the game, but I think this is really important that we had a, an entity here that was really curious and dug deeper than anybody had to that point in the form of the Washington Post. And now I think it's it, is it Joe, is it? Uh, Red is easy. Red is easy. I couldn't get all Red the syllables easy. out. Yeah. yeah. So again, he's one of your retired colleagues. So tell us about what happened with him. Rev, he, bless his heart, he was the one guy that really, in my opinion, tried to do the right thing, did the right thing. And he was actually, the story goes that he was at a meeting with some DOJ officials and he actually, I think it was the deputy, the deputy attorney general asked for a briefing on this case. And he flat out asked the deputy attorney general and he said something to the effect like, What's well, pretty interesting, you're acting for a briefing on this case. You've never asked for a briefing on anything else we've done. Why this one? But the, the real reason, Mark, was all the influence peddling that was going on. He wanted to see, the DAG wanted to see what was going on with this case. Joe was, Joe saw what was happening. He was trying to, you know, wave the flag and say, this is a major problem. And he was actually told to, to take a back seat. And stop, stop being an obstructionist. We have to work with these companies. It, 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 it was disturbing. It was definitely disturbing to see him get uh, shuttled aside. And I feel ethically and morally, he was a guy that just stood up and said, no, this is wrong. This company is doing something wrong. So they had done now another investigation of Purdue and they were, they were ready to file an immediate suspension order against Purdue. And that's, that's serious, right? I, mm -hmm. Because the company is then immediately shut down. Their license to, to move controlled substances is suspended. And I think, am I right about that, Mark? Was it, is that how you're? Yeah, that's how I, it really hit their distributors, if I remember correctly. Yeah, maybe, maybe because... was it McKesson? It was McKesson. I can't remember. In fact, I don't have that one in my notes, yep. but I do remember if I went now a little further, it might be in there, but what they really hit were the distributors. I guess the federal law does not let the actual producers sell directly to physicians and you have to go through a distributor. Yeah. It was Cardinal so, Health. Car if, there you go. And so it was they, Cardinal Health. Yeah. Cardinal Health. Yeah. There you go. And so the distributors were hit really hard with this, but which did not allow them to move this. What they did, the investigation found out that, in other words, the distributors are supposed to be the safeguard, the, the gatekeepers, and they're supposed to be able to flag unusually large shipments, orders of controlled substances going to a particular position, a particular facility, things like this. And clearly these investigations revealed that they were turning a blind eye they, the more they shipped, the more money they made, and they were not doing what federal law required. 
And so this investigation ended up sh shutting them down for, if I get this. In other words, they had, I have, uh, we go from a 5,000 pill to a particular state facility, then to 20,000, 50,000, a hundred and hundred thousand, and they do nothing. They don't make any inquiries. They don't reach out to the DEA, to the FDA, nobody. And these were the practices that were uncovered in the Washington Post investigation and probably to some extent with Renazizi. And again, here's a case where the federal government allow the distributors to pay minimal fines for these really high level violations, but they didn't put them out of business. Yeah. So yeah, Cardinal Health, $130 billion company. DEA yeah. hit them with an immediate suspension order. They paid a $34 million fine, admitted no wrongdoing. And right. where Joe got into, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, where Joe got into, I don't want to call it hot water, where he got into conflict with his superiors and with the Department of Justice was DEA uncovered information that Cardinal was continuing with the, the troubling behavior, that they mm -hmm. hadn't really improved their uh, systems. We're getting up to 2012 and DEA is ready to file another immediate suspension order against Cardinal Health. And this is when there is another influence peddling campaign. For instance, Jamie Gorelick, she was the deputy attorney general under the Clinton administration. When she left the Clinton administration, she went to a company called Wilmer Hale. Cardinal Health retained Wilmer Hale. And then she reaches out to the James Cole, the deputy attorney general from 2011 to 2015, and talks about, hey, DEA is coming after us again. And who knows what the conversation was. If I had to guess, I, I would say it's something that along the lines of, hey, we're trying to improve, we're trying to provide access to patients, et cetera, et cetera. But DEA went ahead and filed the ISO and an appeals court actually ruled with DEA. So that's when it takes us to the next step where the company now had been hit with two ISOs and they said, hey, we can't play the game under this set of rules. We have to change the rules. And that's where uh, a gentleman named Lyndon Barber comes in, who was employed by DEA as a lawyer. He left and started his own law firm and then he was contracted by the pharmaceutical companies to actually rewrite the law. What did you think when you saw that piece about Lyndon Barber and the creation of the, I think it was called the Assuring Patient Access Bill? Yes. Yes. What, what did you think when you saw that? I'll tell you right now, when I saw the name of that legislation and what was it again? Ensuring Patient Ensuring Access. Patient Access. Yeah. When I saw the name of that legislation and I saw the effect of the legislation, the real intent of it. I immediately thought about the double talk legislation I dealt with all the time in California, mm -hmm. Sacramento. And what public safety, this and improve law enforcement, this and everything was designed almost exactly opposite to what the headline, the title of the legislation would be. And this is a prime example. So what I wrote in my notes here, watching this, when I looked at this, the, the former AG, talking to the current AG, talking to the DEA, this and that, all the influence I worked, by the way, love it or hate it, I don't care. 
but I put all this equals swamp. Yes. Swamp. It <laughs> is, it, it's, it, that's the only way to put it. And in my opinion, it's all so incestuous and you have all these former government uh, officials now working in, for God's sake, now working with companies that they personally previously were involved in prosecutions of. Mm -hmm. It's certainly criminal investigations of, at the very least, and now they're working for them, which is not unique in history, in American history, but the level to which we see it now, if not unique, it's very unusual and, and very disheartening. So that's what I think about that. I put down swamp and it reminded me of the double talk we see so often in legislative bills. The bills have nothing to do with what the title of the bill may indicate. And that should be something for all of us to watch very carefully, ladies and gentlemen. Why would the author of a bill, the author of a legislative article, be so afraid of simply putting boldly exactly what the legislation is there for? Because they know that if, if anyone dug deep, it's not to their benefit. It's not to the benefit of society. It's the benefit of a certain group or certain entities, but not the population in general. They have to disguise it. And this is a prime example of this legislation. They want to disguise the actual intent of the bill. The intent of the bill was to increase the profits of these pharmaceutical companies, period. Mark, when you see, like this case in particular, when you see this, do you think, uh, hey, these politicians were duped by the drug companies? Or do you think it's even more sinister than that? There's certainly, I think, Look, anybody can be duped if they're lazy. In other mm -hmm. words, being duped sometimes, it's just a matter of not, of just not reading, writing, like you said, ask the question. We talked about there earlier, how important it is. Look, they, there are in investigations where I look at them, but just a cursory view, and I think, oh man, that's, that person's done for, or, oh, nothing happened here. In other words, he's extremes. And then I'll go back and look at it a week, a month, or six months later, and read in detail on me. God, was I off beef on this? I'm so glad I went back and read. In other words, is that being duped or is that being lazy? And by the way, it can be a combination of both. Someone tells you something, you're really? Okay, you're not messing with me, whatever. And so you are duped, but the responsibility is on you as an individual representative, whatever it is, to, to find out what the truth is. So the other part of that is, so anyway, yeah, you can be duped, you can be lazy. The other part of this is there's no doubt that a lot of these politicians, the elected officials here, Bill, were, I think, intoxicated, intoxicated with the attention and the funding that they were receiving from these companies. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes people are as intoxicated with attention, just that as they are with any financial gain or campaign funds or things like this, that's intoxicating as well. Oh my God, I have a CEO, so-and-so company, or I have the representative calling me, taking me to lunch, whatever. It can be intoxicating and people let themselves run away with these types of emotions. I know it sounds very philosophical, but clearly I think in my opinion, these things happened. Other ones, like going back to Curtis Wright, mm -hmm. I think, I, in my opinion, I think it's a hundred percent where he wasn't duped. He wasn't anything. Yep. He was right. out for himself. He wanted the cold, hard cash. He was probably pro promised something that three hundred and forty or $70,000 a year salary. Fine. I'm, I got it. Other yeah. people, 
I think things can be more in the gray area. I mean, that absolutely. But either way, people aid it and abet it this happening either by direct intention or by willful, a willful ignorance. It was interesting. This law, by the way, ensuring patient access, I think passed by something called the unanimous consent, uh-huh. which, which means I don't even think they actually do it. They almost just add, does anyone object or something? I don't know. It's a strange way they do the vote. Yes. Everyone voted for it. And what this law did is it made it more difficult for the DEA to regulate drug distributors. It made it a lot more difficult for DEA to halt the shipments of drugs when they were, when DEA noticed something was amiss. And to be clear, it was written by a lawyer who used to work for DEA, who left the agency and went to work for the drug companies. When he was at DEA, he was an expert in this particular subject matter. In other words, he wrote the he wrote the legal documents to suspend the license of these people. And now, or, or at this time, he then went to the drug companies and wrote a law to make someone still at the agency unable to do what he did, if that makes sense. So it, it, it's really, and the amount of money that, that some of these politicians got, Mark, I just made some notes. And again, this is according to the documentary, Mike Burgess, Republican from Texas, over a million dollars from pharmaceutical companies from 2001 to 2020. And he was vice chair of the committee holding all these hearings on access to drugs, et cetera. Kevin McCarthy, California, 353,000. A Republican, Marco Rubio, 362,000. There were Democrats too, Al Green in Texas, 480,000. So a lot of money goes into lobby and influence peddling. And unfortunately, I think, I think as Americans, we pay the price. So I don't know what else you saw with that, Mark. I think what it comes down to is the, I, the way I see it, there's two kinds of crimes in this country. There's crimes of greed and crimes of passion. When you see uh, a domestic dispute and someone's killed, that's a crime of passion. When you see drug distribution, there's a crime of greed. There is no better example in my mind of uh, a crime motivated on greed than what we saw with the pharmaceutical industry 20, 20 plus years ago. The effect that it had on me personally. When I, I'm, you got to remember, I'm living this, right? So I'm at the DEA and at that time, and we're looking at these doctors prescribing without medical necessity. We're looking at the pharmacists who are dispensing prescriptions that they know they shouldn't be dispensing. They, they also have a duty, which they weren't following. We're looking at the distribution companies, those middlemen in the drug supply chain. And when I look back and I see the package insert, or, or see that really the FDA could have put a stop to this or could have really controlled this a lot better at the beginning, it caused me to lose a little bit of faith in the Food and Drug Administration personally, and also to look at prescription drugs a lot different. Mm-hmm. You know, up until that time, Mark, a doctor told me to take a prescription drug, I was going to take a prescription drug. Again, like we said when we opened today, the doctor is someone who we respect in our society, we trust. They told me to do something, I'm going to do it. No more. After this and after I saw where sometimes, not all the time, of course, but where I saw 
where their motivation was that in some cases it became greed and the marketing of drugs to make money rather than actually providing a benefit, a health benefit to the American people. I said, man, it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to know what I'm putting in my body, to do the research on each one of these drugs. I can't trust the drug company or the FDA for that matter to tell me, to tell me what's safe. And finally, and I'll hear your thoughts on that in a second, but finally, the reason I wanted to do this particular show and why I think this show is important to do today is because as we saw prescriptions of opiate drugs come down, right? Starting in 2012, they started coming down. There was another drug that prescriptions started going up just as fast as opiates were coming down. And that is prescription stimulant drugs. Adderall, the, the best known example. The number of Adderall prescriptions today is multi-X times what it was back in 2012, 2013. So what happens is pharmaceutical companies say, we're not going to make our money on prescription drugs anymore. We have to look for a new market. And that market has been stimulants. Look at the increase in ADHD. I'm sorry, the ADHD. I'm lost for the word, Mark. You got to help me. Uh, uh, diagnosis? The, yes, uh, that's it. Good guess. We'll, we'll right edit twice that out. Today. Right, yeah, right. No. Look, look at the increase in ADHD diagnosis and all these things. So they've actually, many of the strategies that I saw them use with opiates, I now see them use with stimulants. And I've even seen, maybe you've heard of, but, but the drug companies have been very smart in this. Lately, there's been talk about an Adderall shortage in the United States. The DEA actually gives uh, a quota. They set a quota is probably a better way to describe it. They set a quota on how much of each scheduled drug can be made. The drug companies weren't making their quota, right? They weren't making all of the stimulant drugs they've been allowed to produce. Why is that? I think it's genius. There are... With opiates, what they did was they drove demand and then they drove production and they got caught doing it. Now they're driving demand and they're just sitting back and not making the production. They could produce more drug today and they could sell it, but they're not because they're being overly cautious. And what's happening? Congress is now saying, hey, DEA, why is there a shortage of this drug? The DEA and the, F and the FDA recently wrote a letter asking the drug makers to make more stimulant drugs. Interesting. An unbelievable thing. Interesting. What happens now in 10 years when we have a huge problem with stimulants in this country? And by the way, Mexican drug cartels are already knocking off Adderall pills. They're using methamphetamine made in Mexico, disguising it to look like Adderall pills, shipping them into this country. So what happens in 10 years when we have this huge stimulant addiction problem in this country? and we start looking at the drug companies, they can put their hands up and say, we didn't, hey, we thought there was an issue, but we were actually told by the government to make more of this drug. That never should have happened. The, the regulators should never, the regulators and licensors should never ever be in the business of mm -hmm. telling someone you regulate what production you should make. Leave that to the private sector to determine. Because now, in my opinion, we've given them an out. And we've given the drug companies something they can point to 
when they're accused of many of the same things they've been accused of with stimulant, with uh, opiates, and they can say, hey, listen, we didn't, we didn't get crazy with production. You told us to make more. And, and that's where we're at. So I guess my point in saying all that, Mark, is I'm concerned that 20 years removed from the, this crazy crime of the century, we're seeing the pieces in place now for another crime. And have we learned from what we've been through with opiates or, or are we going to repeat the same problem again with stimulants now in this country? Once again, Bill, you opened my eyes because that's all news to me about the uh, retardation of production. And, but your assessment is dead on. That's actually happening, that these pharmaceuticals are, they learn from their mistakes and they're setting themselves up to be immune in the future. But again, where there's a will, there's a way when it comes to corruption and abusing any system. And it only comes down to individuals being willing to step up and to do the right thing. In this case, it takes a lot of individuals and a team effort to do it. Your assessment about the medical field, about physicians, I unfortunately could not agree with you more. And the, the combination of the opiate addiction crisis, the COVID vaccines, I am not an anti-vaxxer. So no, please, you can throw those labels out, make the comments if you want to. I have all the vaccines from a kid on up. I just got vaccinated for the flu. Sometimes I don't, but I got to tell you the truth. I felt that I had doctors that told me one thing before I got vaccinated. And a year later, after I've been vaccinated twice, this is COVID. And I had already, and I had COVID after the second vaccination. I told, and I had, I went in and told him, I said, doc, he told me that this is going to be a firewall between me and the, the bio. Oh, I never told you that. I said, you told me it's 95% effective at preventing the, the contraction. No, I didn't. Doc, I've been coming to you for 10 years. For 10 years, I've been in the same exam room every year for my annual physical, every year. You stood right there in that corner. I sat right here on this table and you told me, I told you I wasn't going to get vaccinated. And you said, why? I said, we're relatively young. I'm healthy. I don't have any underlying health conditions, blah, 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 whatever. Mark, it's not about you. It's about stopping the transmission. If you get it, you can't transmit it. And if you get the vaccine, you contract this. It can't, tra I said, you told me that right there. And he started to say something and I stopped him. I said, doc, I said, look, I don't know about you, but I was on the stand in front of judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and juries more times than I can remember sworn under oath. I listen to what people say and I know what I say. And you stood right there and told me, you gave me the 95% number. I said, you're either lying to me. And by the way, we're buddies. I said, you're either lying to me, doc, or your recollection is less than what I would like to have at a physician. Right. And then he said, here's what he said. I'm mumbling like he did. At the time, we thought it was 95% effective. It was from that moment, Bill, that I lost in the medical industry because if he yeah. just said at the beginning if he just said to me hey mark you know what that's what we we're told that's what i understood and i was wrong we were wrong i said okay even experts can make mistakes i get that but he flat out lied to me there for whatever reason and so in the combination with the opiates 
all this stuff, I've lost faith. Doesn't mean I won't go to my doctor, but you're mm -hmm. right, Bill. We have to make decisions ourselves. We can take the advice from a doctor, we can listen, blah, blah. And you have to make your own decision. I'm thinking about getting off a of medication I'm on right now, just because, you know what? I don't think I need it. And now yep. I look back at the, the physician, not the same one, but the physician who prescribed this to me. And I found out, guess what? Guess what? He's in that business of promoting that huh? particular drug. I'm thinking mm -hmm. maybe I don't need this. Yeah. So anyway, look, I just think this is the documentary, the discussion together have just been great for me. I feel like I'm loaded up with information to go out there and share with other people. And I uh, hope I've been some asset to you as a partner today to get the word out. No, hundred percent. Appreciate it. Hey, what I would encourage people to do along those lines is, and what I did when I saw this information, this is probably about 10 years ago, or maybe a little more, when I saw this information about Oxycontin and about the FDA, et cetera, I started looking at what drugs have been approved and later pulled from the market. And I found out that I had actually taken two of those drugs. Doc, the FDA said it was safe. A doctor said it was safe. I took it and later on was pulled from the market. And just so people know, oftentimes when a drug is pulled from the market, it's not the FDA going back and saying, hey, we made a mistake. We're gonna pull this drug from the market. It's a class action lawsuit against the drug maker. And part of the settlement is the drug maker willingly pulls the drug from the market, right? So the FDA kind of has an out and doesn't have to admit, admit they made a mistake. But I encourage people to do that See if you've taken any drugs that have been pulled from the market and just be aware of, of the safety of prescription drugs and et cetera. Thank you, Mark. A very interesting discussion. I hope that as a society, we've learned from this opiate crisis. I hope we don't make the same mistakes again going forward. Amen. All right.